Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Amy. It's uh, great to be here in, uh, in the great state of Texas while it's still part of America. Pretty happy about that. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm uh, feeling a little under the weather. I, was, um, I don't know why, I was hanging out in a pig farm in Mexico City. And, uh, <coughs> no, really, it, it is wonderful to be here. And I, I want to thank the, the World Affairs Council. I love the World Affairs Council. I really do. I've been... I will speak at any World Affairs Council anywhere. I actually went to Alaska to speak to the World Affairs Council of Anchorage. So I'm a, I'm a World Affairs Council fan, uh, especially because you guys buy books, which I really appreciate um, as a writer. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. You know, there's so much to talk about uh, that it's hard to know where to start. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep my comments fairly short because what I love about uh, these, uh, these kinds of events is the, the opportunity to engage in a discussion about you know, the issues uh, that you're concerned with. Uh, and so I'm just as interested to hear what you have to say as I hope you're interested to hear what I have to say. Um, but I will start uh, by taking you back for a moment a couple of weeks ago to Turkey and President Obama's first visit there to a, a Muslim-majority state. I was there as well, uh, not with uh, Obama. I mean, I don't want to make myself sound important. I wasn't. Uh, I did get to see the top of his head at a distance. Um, I, did, I did feel the heat and the light emanating. <laughs> so that was, that was something. Um, but, uh, but it was really an interesting experience because when you talk about Turkey, you're talking about a country in which, until quite recently, had a 90% negative view of the United States, 90%, which is shocking when you think about it because you're talking about a country that is about as secular, about as modern, uh, about as Western as any Muslim-majority state can possibly get. I mean, this is a country that has intimate ties to Israel, very close to the European Union, will very likely become part of the European Union uh, sometime in the next decade or so. Uh, and is, I would say, you know, unquestionably the, the most important uh, Muslim-majority ally for the United States uh, in the world. And yet our, our sort of unfavorability ratings there had reached these incredible proportions. And, you know, I say this to people, and sometimes the, the answer is, well, who cares? I mean, you know, who cares if they don't like us as long as, you know, they, they uh, respect us, as long as they fear us. And I understand that sentiment. And, and, you know, if this were the 80s, I guess that sentiment would actually still matter. But it's not. Globalization has completely changed the way that international relations works nowadays. We can't continue in the fiction that, you know, the, the future of diplomacy is going to maintain at, at the sort of nation-state uh, level. Uh, it does matter the way that populations view us. It, it's important because it has everything to do with how successful we are in actually achieving our interests uh, in, in, that, in that region. So 
it is important that you know our star, if you will, has dropped so incredibly low over the last few years. Anyway, so I, I'm in I'm in Turkey and uh, and I was in Istanbul and and President Obama was in Ankara. Uh, and he gave that historic address to the Turkish parliament, which I'm sure some of you saw on television. He began that address in a very curious way. He began it by saying, let me say in no uncertain terms that the United States is not and will never be at war with Islam. And the, the parliament erupted in, in, in applause where I was in Turkey at a hotel in Turkey watching it with a group of young Turkish journalists and writers and, and activists. They they sort of, you know, enormous amount of, of emotion uh, erupted at the end of that speech. And even on the streets of Turkey, you could see this sort of fundamental shift in the way that they were thinking about the United States. The, the, by the time Obama left, the favorite uh, dessert on the streets of Turkey was baraklava, which I thought was pretty, pretty fantastic. It's what you, get, what you get when your president's a rock star. This is what happens. Um, yeah, we have to sort of get used to that. I, I myself have to get used to the fact that the President of the United States looks better with his shirt off than I do. Which I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that fact, but we all have to get used to things. Um, and where I was sitting, it was interesting, this, this young woman uh, said to me, uh, you know, 20-something year old professional uh, Turkish woman, uh, said, you know, with those words, with the words that Obama just spoke, uh, he has changed the narrative between the United States and the Muslim world. And I thought that was really a wonderful thing. And then I thought about it for a minute and I realized, wait a second, George Bush said that all the time. I mean, all the time, really. I mean, he never got tired of talking about, no, this isn't a war against Islam. We have many Muslim friends, etc., etc. And yet, despite you know, those attempts, it's fairly clear that there was this underlying, not underlying, overwhelming, sense in the Muslim world that the war on terror was in fact a war on Islam. As a matter of fact, according to recent polls, some two-thirds of the Muslim world believe that the purpose of the war on terror is to quote-unquote spread Christianity in the region. That these two concepts, uh, war on terror and war on Islam, were one and the same. And there's a very simple reason why they believe this. It's because it's true. That's why. The war on terror as it was conceived and propagated by the previous administration, was unquestionably a war on Islam. Why do I say that? Well, really from the moment in which George Bush kind of launched this concept of war on terror, in fact, the very first moment in which the phrase war on terror was ever used on September 12th, 2001, in which Bush launched it by calling it a crusade, from that very moment, he gave not just the world, but Americans in particular, Americans many of whom were already brimming with religious fury, a lens through which to understand this coming conflict with these radical forces in the Muslim world. After all, what exactly does a war on terror mean? I mean, we all know that terror is a tactic, right? It's not an enemy. How do you actually declare war on a tactic, especially one that's been so successful? in leveling the battlefield between the very strong and the very weak. But it's more than that. The issue itself is, can you even use this symbol of war? Is, is war the right metaphor for talking about this kind of conflict? After all, if you declare war on terrorists, they are not terrorists anymore. It's as simple as that. 
Whatever they do, it can't be called terrorism anymore. Now they're soldiers. You've, you've sort of formalized their, their sort of, their conflict. You've brought it, you've given it weight and purpose. But again, I have to go back to this even larger issue about this concept of war on terror. And that is that, if you think about it, this is not really a war on terror per se, is it? I mean, as far as I know, we haven't launched a conflict against the Basque separatists in Spain. This isn't a war against the Christian insurgents in East Timor. This isn't a conflict against the Tamil Tigers in, in Sri Lanka. Uh, this is not a conflict against the uh, radical Jewish underground, the Kahan Kahane movements in, in Israel. No, no. This is a war against a very specific kind of terror that employed exclusively and solely by Muslims. And it's for that reason that the enemy in the war on terror very gradually expanded to include not just Al-Qaeda and the militants who were responsible for the attacks of 9-11, but an ever-widening conspiracy of disparate forces and groups and movements and organizations and non-state entities and, and state actors from Hamas and Hezbollah to the Muslim Brotherhood to the Kashmiri militants to Iran to the Sunni insurgents in Iraq to the Taliban to Al-Qaeda. In the sort of narrative of the war on terror, all of these groups were considered a single monolithic enemy, even though they had almost nothing in common with each other, certainly not in their aspirations or their agendas. I mean, these are groups that have vastly different goals, vastly different ideologies. Most of these groups hate each other more than they hate us. And yet we've lumped them together into a single category and defined them simply by two things, that they define themselves as Muslim and that they use terror as a tactic. And doing so, as has been said repeatedly by people much, much smarter than me, we've created an undifferentiated enemy. We've made it impossible to figure out who the real enemy is and what they really want. The biggest mistake of this is that we've blurred the line between two very distinct movements in the Muslim world that have to be treated as separate issues. One of these we call Islamism, this is a term that's been thrown around a lot. I think it's important for us to define it. Islamism is a political philosophy. It's, it's an Islamic version of religious nationalism, the same kind of religious nationalism that you see amongst many Christian groups here in the United States, uh, the same kind of, of religious nationalism that you see amongst a burgeoning uh, Zionist uh, group, so-called religious Zionists in, in uh, Israel. Religious nationalism is a universal phenomenon. You see it in India with the BJP party. It's not by any means unique to Islam. But when we talk about Islamism, we're talking about the Islamic version of religious nationalism. So for instance, we're referring to groups like Hamas or Hezbollah or the Muslim Brotherhood. These are nationalist organizations. They have no global agenda. Their goals, their policies, their agenda, their ideology do not expand beyond their borders. Hezbollah has no agenda beyond what they consider to be Lebanon. The same is true of Hamas. We may loathe these organizations. We may you know, uh, think of them as, as odious. We may uh, hate what they stand for. Uh, we may, in a sense, uh, find that their interests and their values are totally in opposition to our interests and values. But nevertheless, they want something very concrete, very real. 
And even if what they want is unacceptable to us, at the very least, the fact that they want something allows for some kind of negotiation, some kind of dialogue. You can talk to a nationalist. You can expect something from a nationalist. On the other hand, and in fact, I would say the mirror opposite of Islamism, are these groups like Al-Qaeda and certain members of the Taliban who have, who have sort of married themselves to Al-Qaeda, who are not Islamists, but who are what we refer to as jihadists. Now this term jihadist, it's even more problematic than, than Islamist, because this is a term that gets tossed around willy-nilly by the media, and it's almost lost all meaning. But it means something very, very specific. It refers to these transnational groups, these global groups like Al-Qaeda, who far from having any kind of nationalist ambitions, are actually anti-nationalist. Their ultimate goal is to get rid of all nation states, to erase all borders, all boundaries, to reconstitute the globe as a single world order underneath, under their uh, you know, leadership, of course. This is what they mean when they refer to caliphate. The jihadists want nothing, certainly nothing real or, or you know, concrete, nothing that can be had. Their goals are so incredibly utopian that it's almost comical, it's almost lunatic. And yet, we've sort of lumped these two categories together. We've given them a single uh, label, terrorist, and then we've responded with a single response, war. And in doing so, we've done something very, very dangerous. And that is that we have validated the viewpoint of the jihadists that this is in fact a war against Islam, not a war against terror. You see, you have to understand that the jihadists aren't fighting a real war. They're fighting what I call a cosmic war, a war of the imagination. What is a cosmic war? Well, a cosmic war is a religious war. It's a war in which uh, participants believe that they are acting out on earth a battle that's actually taking place in heaven between the cosmic forces of good and evil. In other words, it's different than a holy war. A holy war is a real war between real armies uh, who are sort of fighting, you know, for, it's like rival religious groups, you know, fighting against each other uh, for land or for territory or for, you know, some sort of material uh, victory. There is nothing material about a cosmic war. The participants believe that they are nothing more than just actors in a divine script written by God. That it's not their gun or you know, their bombs that, that is being uh, sort of engaged. That this is all sort of an, a heavenly contest. Uh, they're just pawns in this contest. It's a, it's, an, it's a metaphysical war than it is more than it is a real war. Yes, the blood is real. The carnage is real. The battle is taking place on earth. But the war itself is taking place on another plane. And human beings, as I said, are just kind of, you know, puppets. They're the shadows of this larger, you know, cosmic conflict. The advantages of a cosmic war is that it very cleanly divides the world, well, really the universe, into black and white, us and them, good and evil. It's a very simple equation. If you're not us, then you're them. If you're them, then you're the enemy, and you must be destroyed. But more than that, because this isn't just an earthly battle, it's a cosmic battle between good and evil, the enemy becomes not just dehumanized 
it becomes demonized. In other words, it's not just a battle between us and them. Us means we're, we're good. We're on the side of angels. And if you're not on our side, then you're on the side of the devil. You're a demonic force, which means all ethical restraints are set aside. Human morality really doesn't play a role in, in a cosmic conflict. I mean, really, what does human morality matter if it's not really me in charge of my actions? It's actually God that's in charge of my actions. And so the normal barriers, the normal boundaries between uh, combatant and non-combatant, between you know, innocents and, and soldiers, uh, all those kinds of normal borders and boundaries that we put up uh, to sort of differentiate the, the, the right and wrong way to fight a real war completely break down in a cosmic war. It's us and them. It's as simple as that. And worse, a cosmic war is fought not over sort of political concerns. This isn't a battle over land or politics. People engaged in a cosmic war don't, don't think that they're fighting for any kind of territorial conquest. Really, materialist matters don't seem to, don't seem to have any role to play in a cosmic contest. In a cosmic war, what's at stake is your identity, your very sense of self in an indeterminate world. And so, in a sense, losing becomes unthinkable. How can you lose a war when what's at stake is your identity? How can you negotiate? How can you compromise? How can you surrender in such a war? A cosmic war is an unlosable war, but it's also unwinnable. Because again, this is a battle between good and evil, which means that the war is won when we rid the world of evil, when evil is finally destroyed, which, I mean, it's not, look, it's not gonna happen by the time my talk is over, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, it might happen later on this evening, but it's not gonna happen in the next 20, 20 minutes. This is the war that the jihadists are fighting, a war of the imagination. A war in which they believe that they are engaged in a cosmic battle for good and evil. And unfortunately, by adopting the same religiously polarizing rhetoric, by adopting the same Manichaean worldview, and worst of all, by infusing the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with this overwhelming evangelizing spirit that has gripped our armed forces. It's become almost... Uh, uh, this kind of insidious, ubiquitous presence in, on, in our armed forces so that our soldiers on the ground are actually in uniform, in tanks, passing out New Testaments and, and comic books, you know, trying to evangelize to local politicians. In doing so, we have transformed the war on terror into a cosmic war. We're fighting the same war. And the problem with that, the problem of thinking of this conflict with Al-Qaeda as you know, a war between good and evil for the future of civilization, or in the words of John McCain, a battle against, quote, a transcendent evil that seeks to destroy everything that we stand for and believe in. In other words, by treating this group of criminals, this criminal conspiracy, as a metaphysical evil, then we have essentially validated their wor worldview. We've legitimized the way that they see this conflict. We've said, yes, you're right, this is a war between good and evil, except we're good and you're evil. Well, that doesn't really actually work. I mean, there's no real way to kind of out-fanaticize a fanatic, unfortunately. Let's let them win this one, all right? They get it. They beat us. They're more fanatical than we are. 
So this is why I think we have had such a lousy, we've done such a lousy job in adequately confronting these radical forces in the Muslim world is because we're fighting these forces on their terms, in their language. You can't win that kind of fight. So what do we do? Well, I think that there's a couple of steps that we can take, and we can certainly talk about this as a, as a group. This is kind of where I'm really excited to kind of engage you in a discussion uh, as we move forward from here on out, and as we sort of think about how we're going to actually confront these forces. Because frankly, I mean, I'll be honest with you, militarily speaking, we've done a pretty good job against Al-Qaeda militants. I mean, you know, they're, they're still there. They still have the power, I think, to, to uh, launch devastating attacks against our, our friends and our, and our allies. Uh, but, you know, they're by no means the force that they used to be. They are more or less contained in, a, in, a, in one particular area. And it's hard to say, and I've spoken to a lot of counterterrorism experts, uh, it's hard to say that they, ha they are at all capable of launching the kind of 9-11 attacks that they were able to do before then. So in that regard, our military has done a pretty good job uh, in at the very least containing Al-Qaeda and cutting it off at its knees. But when it comes to the larger ideological conflict, you know, the war for hearts and minds that we're supposed to be engaged in, I can't imagine anyone in their right mind who thinks we're doing a good job there. I mean, poll after poll has shown repeatedly, even in this country, 56% of Americans say that we're losing the war on terror. That number is actually much higher when you take a global consensus. BBC World did a, a poll of 23 countries and more than two-thirds said that either nobody is winning this war or Al-Qaeda is winning this war. And by that I mean, again, the sort of ideological conflict. So what do we do? Well, there's a couple of steps, I think. First, we need to change the rhetoric. In a sense, this has already kind of happened. Uh, the, the Obama administration, as most of you know, has decided to finally join the rest of our European allies and just get rid of the term war on terror. This is a term that is so deeply infused with this cosmic war concept. It has become synonymous with war against Islam, that it just doesn't do us any good anymore. And I know that there's been a lot of jokes made about this and about you know, what we're calling it now, overseas contingency operation, which, you know, as I said, uh, sounds like a backpacking trip through Europe. Uh, like if your, kids, if your kids tell you, this summer I'm going on an overseas contingency operation, don't freak out. They're not, they're not joining the war. They're just they're going to Europe. Um, but it's not. It's not silly. It actually is important. I mean, again, if this is a war of ideas, as we're constantly told it is, well then, our words are kind of important, aren't they? In fact, our words could some, probably be the most effective weapon at our disposal. It does matter how we talk about this. And I'll tell you, it's actually made a difference. I mean, in a sense, you know, these sort of Al-Qaeda ideologues like bin Laden and, and Zawahiri who you know, constantly release these, these audio testaments, these video uh, dictates, they are grasping at straws right now. They've released you know, two or three audio tapes uh, during the Obama administration in which they really don't have any answer. They don't know what to say anymore. They've sort of launched these almost comically racist diatribes against President Obama, which honestly has done nothing but actually backfire. Uh, in, in, the, in the sort of jihadist postings, you know, we, these young people have actually turned away. They're kind of disgusted by you know, the overt racism 
of, of uh, these Al-Qaeda guys, who, by the way, have this utopian idea of no more race, no more ethnicity, no more culture, no more nationality, and then they use this kind of language. So they really, they don't know how to respond to a president who refuses to fight back in the same way. I mean, whatever you want to say about Bush, bin Laden knew how to talk to Bush because they spoke the same language. They both had this concept of a cosmic mind frame. But as soon as you know, a president decided he's not going to play that game anymore, the other side doesn't know what to do. They really have been almost silenced in that way. So changing the rhetoric, it's an important thing. It, it really does matter. The second thing that we have to do is we have to talk to our enemies. This notion that you know, we can kind of ignore these problematic states like Syria and Iran, I mean, not only is it a strategic blunder, it's actually dangerous. I mean, we don't live in the kind of world, as I said before, where you can just sort of isolate nations anymore. Globalization has essentially erased these borders, these boundaries, these transnational alliances have become so important now that we can you know, continue to sanction Iran for the next 30 years. It's not going to make any difference because they've got China, they've got Russia, they've got the black market. It doesn't matter. The days in which we treated diplomacy like a reward for good behavior, you know, do what we want you to do, and then we'll talk to you, those days are over. So we have to figure out a way to engage the people that we disagree with, if for no other reason than to get them to change their attitude, to change their behavior. And that's already happening, I have to say. You know, there are elections taking place in Iran in, in a month, and President Ahmadinejad is running for re-election. He doesn't have a very good shot because this is a man who basically became president on a single platform, the economy, uh, and his promises to sort of fix the economy. Well, four years later, the economy is on the verge of utter collapse in Iran. Iran needs oil to be $97 a barrel in order to balance its budget. Oil is $46 a barrel, $45 a barrel. Help me out, Dallas. Yeah? It's got to be something like that? Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's not 97 is what I'm trying to say. And it's not going to be 97 again. And so, you know, this is a man who can't really bring up the economy as he's running for re-election. And so what does he do now? His entire campaign has been devoted to uh, setting himself up as the guy who can talk to Obama. I'm not kidding. He's the man. I'm the man who can reach out to the West and reach out to America. In fact, his campaign slogan, my cousin just told me, my cousin in Iran just told me this, it's hilarious. His campaign slogan is Mitavonim, which is Persian for yes we can. <laughs> That's how things have changed. That's how you change things, like that. So we need to change the rhetoric. We need to talk to our enemies. But that's just the beginning. Because while words are important, our actions are even more important. I said earlier that, you know, Al-Qaeda doesn't want anything. It's true. They don't have any plans. They don't have any policy. They, it's not like they're not goalless. They have a goal. Remake the world in their image. Great. Good for you. Good luck. But they do have grievances. And those grievances are very powerful. The suffering of the Palestinians, American support for Arab dictatorships, uh, the lack of social or political or economic development in that region. Heck, the fact that we've been treating that entire Middle East like a giant gas station for 50 years. Now, for Al-Qaeda, these are not real grievances. They're more like 
abstract symbols to rally around. It's not as though those 19 people who brought down the Twin Towers thought that doing so would bring peace to Palestine. It was the furthest thing from their minds. But they did say they were doing it for Palestine. Not that they've done anything to help Palestine, of course. And in fact, the very notion of a Palestinian state is against everything that they stand for. They don't want a Palestinian state. They don't want any states at all. Which is why there's never a jihadist fighting alongside Hamas. They're different groups. They want completely different things. But just because Al-Qaeda treats these grievances like symbols, just because they're nothing more than sort of you know, a wide net to throw over you know, as many people as possible, doesn't make them any less real, any less legitimate. They are legitimate grievances, and they have to be addressed as such. The Palestinians really are suffering. America really does support Arab dictatorships. There really is a lack of social and economic development in that region. We really do treat it like a gas station. Until we figure out a way to actually address the fundamental grievances that fuel these kinds of movements, that essentially give weight to the, the, this cosmic impulse, then these groups will always exist and they'll always be appealing. Because there are people who disagree with everything Al-Qaeda stands for, disagree with their tactics, hate their ideology, but nevertheless see them as the only group that's actually talking about their grievances, that's actually talking about the things that they feel, that the aspirations that they have. So we've done a good job, I think, on the word part. I think the Obama administration has done a good job at least changing the rhetoric. But there is a much more important step that we haven't taken yet. We have to fundamentally change the way we deal with that region. We have to deal with these grievances. The administration hasn't really done that yet. You know, okay, it's been a hundred and something days. It's fine. There are some other things on, its, on, on Obama's plate, I guess, like, a, you know, global economic collapse. But still, this is sort of the primary challenge now. Okay? The thesis is right. As, as, as a professor, this is how I would put it. Good thesis statement. Now go write the paper. That's what we have to do now. And finally, and this one I think, you know, I usually sort of say this one is a little bit more controversial, but maybe in this crowd it's not. Finally, we're going to have to recognize sooner or later that Bush was right. That political participation is the key. Political participation is the only form, the only means through which these radical tendencies can be uh, moderated. And I'm talking about the Islamists here, those who are religious nationalists, who want something. If you're willing to put down your guns and pick up a ballot, we will support you. We don't care if we don't like you. We don't care if your interests are against our interests. You want something concrete? You want something that can actually be had in this world? Let's talk. It's as simple as that. We can't ignore these groups. This is true certainly of Hezbollah, certainly of the Muslim Brotherhood, but it's even true of Hamas. We may think Hamas is a terrorist organization, and they, they are, they are a terrorist organization, but they are also the most robust, the most dynamic political culture, the political group in that entire region. And that can't be ignored anymore. The same is true of Hezbollah. It has been proven over and over again, from Morocco to Algeria, to Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood, certainly, to Indonesia, to Malaysia, to Turkey, the, the ruling government there, that's an Islamist government. It's been proven repeatedly that when these groups 
are given an opportunity to participate, to participate in the political process with rules, with boundaries, without exception, they have been forced to moderate their behavior and their ideology. When what you need to focus on is keeping the lights on and cleaning the garbage off the streets and making sure that the checks are, you know, to your civil servants go out every month, it's hard to kind of think about, you know, destruction of Israel when those kinds of things are happening. At the very, very least, we have to give these groups an opportunity to fail. You know, it's been said repeatedly that an election does not a democracy make. That's true. But two elections back to back, that's a pretty good start. Three elections, that's even better. What we need to do is make sure that these groups get to that second election, that they have an opportunity to either fail and then lose their popularity or succeed by moderating their behavior. I'll tell you one sort of story about this that kind of really brings this home. You know, in December, during that war with uh, Israel and Gaza, the narrative in the American media was almost universal in saying, this is Bush's fault. If you really think about it, this is Bush's fault. He pushed for democracy in Palestine, he pushed for elections, and what did we get? We got Hamas. And then, of course, you know, we closed off Hamas completely. We sort of said, I know we promised you sovereignty and we promised that we would obey whatever your, your wishes were, but we were just kidding. Uh, no, forget it. And what was the result? Hamas took over Gaza. There was a civil war between Hamas and Fatah. And then you had the war between Israel and Gaza. That, according to the sort of master narrative of that war, that war between Hamas and Israel was the inevitable result of pushing for democracy in that region. In fact, it was the lesson. The lesson to be learned from that war is you can't push for democracy. Wrong. The lesson from that war didn't happen in Israel. It happened in Lebanon. In the 30 days in which Israel bombarded Gaza, turned that sliver of land into dust, not a single Hezbollah rocket was fired into Israel. Not one. First time that this has ever happened. In fact, Hezbollah pretty much kept quiet about the entire thing. 30 days. And they had nothing to do with it whatsoever. Why? Was it because they suddenly decided they love Israel? No. Was it because they, they, they weren't sort of in tune with the suffering of the Gazans? Absolutely not. And it certainly wasn't because they were afraid of Israel. They had proved two years earlier in 2006 that they could fight Israel to a standstill if they wanted to. It was a very simple reason for this. There were elections coming up in Lebanon. And Hezbollah had completely transformed itself into a political party. And it was not about to, to jeopardize what everyone believes, what all political analysts believe, is going to be a very successful election for them. They're going to do very well. They're going to pick up a lot of seats and they're maybe even given a few ministerial posts as they deserve. Because if you clean the streets, you deserve votes. If you build hospitals, you deserve votes. If you feed poor people, you deserve their votes. It's as simple as that. That's the lesson to learn about democracy promotion in that region. This is something that we're going to have to continue to work on. I know that democracy has gotten sort of a bad word around there. It's, it's almost sort of synonymous with hypocrisy. I get that. The way that, it, that the Bush administration went forward with the democracy promotion project was, I think, wrongheaded. But the idea was right. And that, I think, has to be understood by this administration. So it's a long road, 
but at least, you know, we can say that we've begun it in the right way. At the very least, we've realized what I try to explain in this book, which is there is only one way to win a cosmic war. Refuse to fight in one. Thank you very much. I see a lot of our most inquisitive members out there. Show what you got. Let's see some good questions. Right back there. Uh, a little bit of background and then a question. Lots of questions. Question. Not a lot of background. <laughs> First of all, Hezbollah did fire rockets during the Gaza War. No, they didn't. Rockets were fired by militants that were in the uh, refugee camps that had nothing to do with Hezbollah. That's a fundamental fact. Actually, no, Nir Rosen was actually in Lebanon. The New York Times reported on this as well. That group was, a, was refugees. They were Palestinians in Palestinian refugee camps. They were not Hezbollah. New York Times, in my case. Yeah, well, New York Times means the person who was actually in Lebanon. So was Lieutenant Colonel Gail Elon, former IDF member, and so I'll take his word for it. Well, okay, you take the word of an Israeli general who's actually part of the war. I'll take the word of independent journalists who were actually in those camps. Hamas also, yes, they did build hospitals in Gaza. And during the war, Hamas leadership hid in bunkers underneath the maternity ward of the major hospital in Gaza. Thirdly, Ahmadinejad is a front man. The Ayatollahs will decide who becomes president of Iran. He's not running for elections. It's not a valid election. But to my question, in this country, we pretend to be an educated country, uh, notwithstanding the fact that most people on the street could not tell you who the vice president is. We consider ourselves an educated country. What I'd like to know is these polls that you quote in Turkey and other places, how do people living in squalor, mud huts, and educate, un, very uneducated, and certainly not worldly sophisticated, how do they come up with a poll that tells the world that uh, they hate the Americans? Their press is government control. Turkey is one of the largest economies on the planet. Uh, it's actually uh, a, an incredibly rich country. In fact, the reason that the European Union wants Turkey in it is because Turkey is Europe's largest trading partner. Um, so what you're saying is just simply incorrect. Uh, I'm sorry? California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Right. I'm not sure what that has to do with Turkey's economy, but yes. So Turkey is, yeah, okay, so it's, it's not, okay, so it's got a, a smaller economy than California, which you're right. Um, but, you know, to talk about Turkey as a, as a poor country of ed uneducated people is, it's just not, you don't, I mean, you don't, you don't know Turkey, unfortunately. The other thing about Iran is that you're, you're completely mistaken about this. Whatever you want to say about Iran, and it's certainly not a free society, and, and certainly, uh, foreign policy is in the hands of an a unelected clerical clique, not just you know the supreme leader. 
But those presidential elections, and in fact the parliamentary elections, the 13 parliamentary and presidential elections that Iran has had over the last 30 years, are far and away the freest and fairest elections in the whole of the Middle East. Uh, it's absolutely, quite frankly, ignorant to say that you know, the Ayatollahs decide who's president. Uh, that's never happened. In fact, in the previous election, Ahmadinejad was not Khamenei's choice. Valayati was Khamenei's choice. And he didn't even make it to the second round. The election before that, Ahmadine, I mean, uh, Khamenei actively campaigned against Khatemi, who won twice with 70% of the votes. So it's just incorrect to say that you know, the Ayatollahs decide who's president. It is true that there is a vetting process. It's a, a, an elected body called the Council of Guardians decides who can actually run for president. But, and, and that's certainly not a fair process. It's politically motivated, no question. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a, 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 a harsh critic of the state, they're not gonna let you run for president. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the people who go through that system represent, and certainly in the last election, the election that, in which Ahmadinejad won fair and square against Rafsanjani, the six people who made it through that process, from the far-right candidates, the Larajanis, the Balayatis, to the far-left candidates, the Karubis and the, the Moins, represented a far greater diversity in political and religious thought than any presidential election in American history. We get two choices, and those two choices rarely are that far apart from each other. Now, I'm not saying that their election is more fair than ours, but it's just simply a total fallacy to say that there is no such thing as a free election in Iran. As far as the Hamas thing goes, I'm not gonna get into an argument about you know, what, whether Hamas is, is moral or not. I don't, there's, how do you win that argument? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue that. Um, I will say this, Gaza is unquestionably the most densely packed region on earth. There is no such thing as civilian areas in Gaza. This argument that I heard over and over again that you know, the Hamas militants are hiding among the population, Hamas is the population. There is no such thing as a war zone in Gaza and a residential zone in Gaza. There are 1.5 million people living in a place smaller than Trenton, New Jersey. So you tell me, how do you, how do you actually differentiate between you know, combatant and non-combatant? And by the way, I should just say, uh, you know, Israel did make a, a, a conscious decision to say that they were going to not uh, uh, fight civilian targets, and they did try to, to not, not uh, uh, deliberately bomb civilian targets. However, because Hamas is not just a military organization, it's also a political organization, it's also a social organization, and it's also the legal force in that country, Israel considered the police, the, uh, the telecommunication centers, uh, the uh, hospitals, the, uh, uh, a bread factory, a cardboard factory, uh, all of these things were considered part of Hamas and they were targeted and destroyed. The argument being that, well, if it's a Hamas thing, then Hamas is who we're fighting against. True, except that the police station is not you know, Hamas militants. They're not fighting a war. So this is not as clear cut and black and white as, as you may think it is. I mean, this is, a very complex set of issues 
that Israel itself recognizes, which is why, by the way, that Israel has been negotiating with Hamas. Uh, you know, we're the ones who say that we won't talk to Hamas. Israel, who's actually threatened by Hamas, understands you can't ignore this group. You actually have to deal with them. Let's get some more questions. See, we have a lot. I'm going to ask that the questions be brief, and I'll even ask if the answers can be. <laughs> All right, as we get everybody. You right there in the middle, ma'am. Wait for the microphone, please. It's coming right to you. Where do the interests and participation of women in this dialogue uh, come in? That's a great question. And in fact, uh, it's funny because particularly in countries like Iran, uh, you know, women who are legally not, you don't have the same legal rights as men do, actually make up the bulk of the electorate. Uh, that's primarily because they also make up the bulk of the educated class. 60% of college degrees in Iran go to women. Uh, the literacy rate uh, just for women in Iran is almost 90%, which matches the literacy rate amongst women in the United States. Um, so women are playing an active role in, in certain countries, like Iran, certainly in Syria, uh, in Egypt. There's a very large and active women's rights movement, certainly in Turkey. Um, but I think that uh, there is a real problem, particularly in these more tribal areas, in Pakistan, uh, in Kashmir, um, certainly in Saudi Arabia, uh, where women are still considered, you know, in that sort of tribal tradition as, as almost property more than anything else. What to do about that? I mean, really, the only thing that, that we have, the only sort of tools that we have at our disposal, uh, and I forgot to mention Afghanistan, of course, um, is social, uh, is education and social investment. This is something that the, the Obama administration was talking a lot about today, if you saw in that press interview with uh, the presidents of Pakistan and Afghanistan. You know, one of the things that he said, which kind of caught my attention, is that, you know, there, there is a military component to this fight. I mean, let's not be naive about it. But that if we truly want to kind of change the structure, then it's, it's got to be more than just bombs and guns. It has to be, you know, hospitals and schools. Uh, in Pakistan, really, Outside of Karachi and Islamabad, the federal government doesn't build any schools. And so you wonder why women don't get any education and boys just go to these madrasas where you know, they learn religious training uh, instead of you know, things that actually matter, things that actually will allow them to sort of build up their civil societies. So I think that this is, a, this is a, a, something that, and especially Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, has made a real priority is that the future of this region really rests on you know, the hopes and aspirations and the opportunities that women can possibly have. Um, and if you know, countries like Iran and Syria and Egypt and Jordan are any indication, given the chance, women can prove themselves to be quite strong leaders. Um, and by the way, I think you should, you know, this is something came up during the, the election uh, when uh, we were talking about the possibility of having a, a woman president. Um, you know, I always thought it was funny that, you know, in the Muslim world, there have been dozens of female prime ministers and, and presidents, uh, and we were talking about whether we're ready for one? Come on. Yeah, I noticed in your bio that, uh, I think it was the Harvard Divinity School, you did some work with the United Nations. That's right. What, what do you see as the role of the United Nations in all of this dialogue that you're talking about, or do they have a role in, in today's society? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, the, the reputation of the UN has really been tarnished over the last few years for a whole host of reasons, some, some their fault and, you know, some not really of their doing. Um, 
But I think it's important to recognize that the UN is only as powerful as the Security Council. I mean, basically, five countries run what the UN does. Otherwise, the UN is toothless. And if those five countries don't believe in the power of the UN, then the UN becomes completely you know, impotent. Um, and truly, during the last administration, there was a real sort of anti, uh, not just the United Nations, but really any international body uh, sentiment that uh, really disempowered the United Nations. And that's, a, that's wrong for a lot of reasons, because the UN does play a very important role, uh, maybe not militarily, but I mean, it does play a very important role as far as sort of social obligations that the West has towards these developing countries. But more importantly, it gives you know, the Ahmadinejads of the world you know, the kind of fodder that, they, you know, frankly, we don't need for them to have. You know, when Ahmadinejad addressed the UN uh, uh, um, Council, I guess this was 07, maybe, 06, um, he said something that, you know, was frankly true. Uh, he said, what is the purpose of this deliberative body if the people who are the leaders of it don't have to follow international law? What's the use of this thing? Um, and that comment really resonated across you know, most of the countries who are represented there, but who feel as though they are powerless, that they have to abide by the laws set forth by the, by the UN, but the people who actually wrote those laws, the United States, Britain, China, we don't have to. So we have to invest in the United Nations in order to make the United Nations, you know, the, the, the body that it can be. Without our support, it just, it, it'll fail. It's only as strong as we allow it to be. You know, the overwhelming, it seems to me that since 9-11, the overwhelming uh, majority of victims of the cosmic war that you're talking about have been Muslims themselves. Right. And many, many uh, it seems to me that many times uh, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq is not targeting American uh, soldiers, but rather Shias or other minorities. And I'm wondering, how do they justify uh, in, a, in a cosmic war yeah. setting, how do they... That's a great question. Um, you have to understand that the jihadists are Puritans. Uh, and I mean that you know, with the, the lowercase p, not the, the capital P. Uh, you know, they don't wear like cob hats or whatever. Uh, uh, in that their ultimate aim is to strip Islam of what they see as its uh, religious and cultural innovations. You know, they want to return Islam to some kind of idealized, purified, unadulterated, and by the way, totally imaginary past. And so as Puritans, they believe that anybody that doesn't follow their particular viewpoint of Islam, their particular theology, which is often referred to as Wahhabism, it's a distinctly Saudi version of Islam, a very ultra-puritanical version of Islam. If you don't believe that, you're not really a Muslim anymore. Obviously, that rules out the Shia. Uh, the, the Shia, in fact, are considered the worst heretics by the jihadists. Uh, from the very beginning, their sort of primary focus has been on slaughtering as many Shia as, as possible. They don't even call them Muslims. They call the Shia Rawafida, uh, which is, is sort of a derogatory term that means rejectionist. Um, and indeed, the, the sort of uh, foreign fighters in Iraq, the jihadists, so in other words, not the, the, the Iraqi Sunni insurgents themselves who are nationalists, 
they want to build a state. I'm talking about the other Arabs and people from all over the, of the world who came to Iraq to sort of launch this cosmic war. For them, you're right. Their focus has been much more on the Shia than it has been on the Iraqis, I mean on the, uh, on the Americans. This goes back to this concept that the jihadists referred to that I talk a lot about in this book called the near enemy and the far enemy. Uh, the near enemy in their mindset is other Muslims, uh, those who sort of reject their particular viewpoint. They have to be either converted to this particular Wahhabi form of Islam or they're not Muslims anymore and they have to be killed. They're apostates. The far enemy is us, Christians, Jews. And there's actually a real debate that's been going on in the jihadist movement from the very beginning. This is a movement that's about 20 years old. And from the very beginning, there was a real debate over who should we target first, the near enemy or the far enemy. The near enemy you know, is what sort of a lot of the religious purists want. You know? No, let's, let's sort of purify ourselves first and then we'll take on the far enemy. The far enemy people say, no, no, if we attack the far enemy and then we get them to sort of drag them into this conflict, then they can be a polarizing force and people will join our side. So the Bin Laden Zawahiri camp is, is the far enemy group. They're the ones who sort of think, let's drag the West into this conflict and then this way Muslims will like us. You know, instead of let's kill Muslims, then Muslims don't like us. The Zarqawi camp, you know, this sort of Al-Qaeda in Iraq group is, is very much in the near enemy. They're the ones who say, no, the, the real insidious, you know, the cancer in our, in our community has to be taken care of first. And so that's why you see this sort of constant back and forth between these two groups. But it, it comes from this puritanical ideology. You're right. By far, I mean by the tens of thousands, Muslims out, have outnumbered the you know, victims uh, of, uh, as Americans. That, that sentence made no sense. I'm going to try it one more time. When it comes to the victims of Al-Qaeda, Muslims outnumber non-Muslims by the tens of thousands. You're right. Last question. You sir in the back row. I know that uh, Huntington's Clash of Civilizations has been widely dismissed uh, since its publication, but it seems to me that many of his observations and predictions have been validated in recent times. I wonder what your uh, opinion of his thoughts might be, particularly relevant to your thesis on terrorism. I think that the whole, the foundation, the philosophical foundation of his thought was incorrect. For a couple of reasons, because this idea of civilization is such a, it's such a fluid notion. I mean, what is Islamic civilization? What does that mean? Uh, does it mean Arab civilization? Because Arabs make up only about 7% of the world's 1.5 billion Muslims. And you know, yes, it, it started as an Arab religion, but it's not anymore. Does it mean Persian civilization? I'd like to think so, uh, as an Iranian. Uh, <laughs> But it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Does it, are we talking about the Ottomans, uh, which sort of took over the Muslim world, the Mongols? I mean, what does it mean to say Islamic civilization? Well, Huntington himself admitted what it means. It means Islam. That's what it means. And certainly when you use something like Western civilization, this sort of false notion that somehow there is such a thing as Western civilization that grew independently of the successive cultures of the Middle East. It's ridiculous. There's nothing called Western civilization that was not influenced by the Middle East. Even Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion. And in any case, usually when you use this term, most people who use this term Western civilization, Islamic civilization, 
they mean Christianity and Islam. That's what they mean. And so the sort of foundation of it is, I think, incorrect. By the way, Huntington talked about seven civilizations, and the other ones are almost as crazy. I mean, he refers to Hindu civilization, by which I'm fairly certain he means India, which is crazy, because, first of all, there's no such thing as Hinduism. Hinduism is, you know, a, a panoply of religious faiths, uh, some of which are monotheistic, some of which are pluralistic or polytheistic, some of which are atheistic, uh, and which have nothing to do with each other. And in any case, India is the second largest Muslim country in the world, even though the Muslims are a minority in that, in that, uh, in that country. So these kinds of civilizational categories break down very, very fast. But I'll tell you something very interesting. That book was a massive bestseller in the Arab world. Huge! Huge bestseller. I mean, the Arabs loved it. Uh, and I think there's two reasons why. One, it's because there was this sort of sense that uh, Huntington was sort of equating the West with the Islamic world, that sort of putting them on the same category, which he wasn't. Um, but also, it's because the Clash of Civilizations got a huge boost from Osama bin Laden, who, when asked about Huntington's book, said, that is absolutely correct. Anyone who denies the fact that there is a clash of civilizations between Islam and the West uh, is, well, he said, is an apostate. Doesn't know, you know, either thing. And so he said, it's, it's in the Quran itself. Um, so again, we, by adopting this sort of framework, this sort of clash of civilizations mentality in thinking about this conflict with these militant groups, we once again just validated their worldview. We, we said, we sort of accepted their terms in this conflict. This is not the kind of war that you want to fight on Al-Qaeda's terms. You want to fight this on our terms. And the best way to do that is to stop this clash of civilizations thing. And by the way, I know we're out of time, but this is the thing that I think is most exciting about President Obama. Let me go back to Turkey for a moment here. At the end of that conference that I was there, the Prime Minister of Turkey, Prime Minister Erdogan, uh, stood up and he made this really wonderful speech about Obama. He said, to me, the President of the United States is very much like the city, Istanbul, that we're sitting in right now. The city that literally bridges the East and the West. That is, at once, eminently Muslim and yet historically Christian. You know, this multicultural, multi-religious land uh, that is, you know, that sort of represents that kind of diversity that globalization promises. And I think that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it because this president who's the, the son of a Muslim father from Africa and a Christian mother from Kansas is in a sense himself, not anything that he says, but himself, his very identity is that bridge between the civilizations. Um, and that's something that whether you support him or not, you have to be happy about because it is changing the dialogue. It's changing the narrative and hopefully it'll continue to do so for the better. Thank you, everyone. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.